Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. To Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida, and he's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the world of a commodity. Sean, how you doing today, bud? Pretty good. Uh, had great holidays. Glad to get started for a new year, and uh, you know we're we're looking ahead and um, trying to figure out how everything's going to play out here. But right now, what's front and center certainly is uh, South American weather still, and obviously the big change in. The Northern Hemisphere winter that we suggested would really get going, and it's it's definitely um, you know we have some some record cold polar vortex, so snowstorm. We're gonna get more snow in many areas in the next ten days, and they got all winter last year. So winter's back, and it ain't going away until March. It's gonna be a, a long cold one, despite most forecasters have been predicting a blowtorch winter on strong El Nino, which we just talked about on your show many times, yep. was a false narrative. So. Yep. Yeah, that was the, uh, we talked about that quite a bit. And I remember telling my mom when I was home for Thanksgiving, like, hey, the guy that's on the podcast all the time, Sean, he's, uh, don't, don't get used to this warm weather because it's going to, it's going to get cold. And I talked to her before I made my, my trip out here to Nashville to see a customer. They were expecting six inches of snow across there in, in central Kansas. And, uh, there's a guy that I'm, that I'm working with that just showed up here from, uh, the Des Moines area that were, they're expected 10 to 14 inches of snow. And, and, uh, and it's cold it's, air. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, very cold air, and, and there's a lot more snow coming. It's um, a very active pattern, um, you know, exactly opposite from last year. Last year we had a record cold December and blowtorch the rest of the way. This year's totally versus everybody got, you know, got, like I said, got caught thinking El Nino warm winters. Well, that's true if it's a super El Nino, but everyone misconstrued that the sea surface temperatures are the only thing you look at, but the most important thing is the atmospheric response, which never delivered anything but a borderline weak El Nino response, which means El Nino, El Nino Mordecai, negative QBO, all these things mean really, really cold, nasty winter for uh, once you got past December for, you know, especially the center eastern part of the country with a lot of nor'easters one after another, and we're seeing one coming up and another one coming behind it. I mean, it's exactly... 
what we what we forecasted back last August when we made this initial forecast. Yeah. So. And then we had, if you're looking at, at the weather pattern that we look at now, there's a, um, a few things coming. Um, and you're, you're right about the other part of the weather pattern that you're talking about, too, where you had, you know, like out west where I'm at, it's been really, really cold. We have not got the moisture this fall, uh, these fall snows that we would normally see, the these late, uh, early winter snows and stuff. We have It's snowed, but it's not been of anything of any kind of magnitude. We've gotten the cold to come with it, but just no moisture in the air. Yes, yeah, so like I said, the, 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 all the moisture has been far more concentrated, you know, yeah. east, you know, center east, not center west. Like last year, it was center west, just couldn't stop the snow from falling. It, it always snows that west a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying there's no snow, right. but I mean, relative, you know, it's it's going to be an eastern snow story this year, eastern-based yeah. snow story this year. Yeah. So so they crushed natural gas prices in December because they said, well, it's going to be a warm rest of the way. And now their natural gas is taking off because apparently, magically, somehow we're actually going to have a really, really cold, nasty winter that no one saw coming. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I am flummoxed and surprised that natural gas got down to COVID levels. I really was not anticipating the price could get that low. I should know better knowing natural gas overshooting all the time, but it, do, it did what it did. But now it's on the men. It's roaring back. And, um, and some sense, some 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 sane sensibilities coming back to the natural gas market about what's really laying ahead. And so, what we see happening, I always hear people talk about. So last year, the big story was always oh, we have we have, no, we have uh, very low inventories. We're going to run. You know, it doesn't matter what the inventories are at the beginning of the season. It matters what the inventories are going to be at the end of the season, as you know, because of the blowtorch winter last year, right. which we predicted. We had very, very high inventories at the end of the winter, which means we had plenty of supply, which means it's very, very hard to get into trouble uh, because you're going to go into the winter with plenty of supplies. But but it doesn't matter. if Are we going to have a, another blowtorch winter? If we did, then we are in deep trouble. We're going, you know, but if we're going to have a really cold winter, then we're going to end this winter very with very low inventories, dramatically lower than it was last year, which means it's going to be very hard to build inventories back to where they need to be ahead of next winter next winter our preliminary work is telling us it's going to start early which would be really really be unfortunate because if you go in with low inventories and you have a start let's say a very cold fourth quarter and you get the heating demand starting early you know that's where you can kind of generate potentially a panic in the marketplace um we're looking at la nina coming back for the uh, uh coming uh, summer and fall which means two things a lot more heat in the U.S., and that means a lot more cooling demand, which means that the inventory build is going to be much. We had that a couple of years back. We had a very hot summer, and we didn't get those inventory rebuilds. And what does it also mean? It means we could have a very, very hyperactive Gulf of Mexico hurricane season coming up. We know what happened two years ago. We had a hyperactive, you know, and we, we, yep. we caused all kinds of havoc with the hurricane. So, so this is there is just multiple issues here with the natural gas market going forward that all suggest that the that the that the revisiting of the covid lows which have still astonished market <laughs> was able to do that uh, you know is is just going to be just a one final long term opportunity for long term uh, physical buyers of you know energy of natural gas of propane of you know, nitrogen-based fertilizer, just all those things that are tied to the natural gas cycle. I mean, you just have a very exciting multi-year opportunity to lock in very cheap physical supplies 
And, um, you know, and so you have to be thankful the market did something completely stupid. Um, you know, just gave, it just gave a windfall opportunity for those that are able to, um, you know, go against the grain, no pun intended. So <laughs> no pun intended, no pun intended um, at all. None. So let's talk a little bit about wheat right now. So we had this rough start, uh, getting wheat planted this year, just because of how dry it was this fall. We're looking at, um, some pretty significant cold weather coming through. I heard, you know, plenty of people talking about the, uh, polar vortexes that were going to come, uh, in, in late January, uh, about a month ago, which you don't, you don't typically hear that kind of a conversation, but, um, this early, they're usually like three days before one comes and, oh my God, we're having a polar vortex. So, um, as you're looking at the situation we see right now, what are your thoughts on the wheat market and potential winter cure that we, winter kill that we might see out there, uh, coming here pretty soon over the next couple of weeks? Well, th there is snow falling, uh, center right. east. And so a lot of this, uh, a lot, there's a lot of protection on there. <clears throat> The problem with winter kill is no one really knows ever right. to what degree it really is. It is, it isn't, and you know, it, it's it, it's it's one of those things you get a little short term reaction, but it, but the market just waits for post dormancy to tell them what actually happened. So you know, it doesn't go get it wrong. I mean, if there's a bunch of uh, exposed uh, ground and we're gonna, you know, which can happen. I mean, right now, for the most part, I think most of the key winter wheat areas are going to be protected by enough snow that I don't think the market will get too excited. It doesn't mean there's no damage, by the way. It just means right. I don't think the market can get excited about it. We're more excited. I'm not, I'm never excited about shorting uh, food supplies for, for the, but what I am more concerned about is a, uh, you know, may hard freeze this year. And to me, that's really the market would undoubtedly react to that because it's post dormancy, there's no doubt about damage that's done right. uh, yep. during that kind of time. The devastation to production that you would have for winter wheat with a hard freeze in, let's say, the first half of May would really be devastating, not to mention the interruption of corn and soybean, early planted acres, and all the chaos that that would create. But uh, that that's really more of what we're looking at is the potential, probably the highest probability for a a May freeze here that we've seen in probably over 20 years. Um, and, um, you know, doesn't mean it's going to happen. Just like when we predicted the frost in Brazil, doesn't mean it's going to happen. But, we, but all our work says that all the variables that typically have promoted, you know, late spring frosts in the past are in, are in alignment for this particular year, which means we have our highest chance for it to happen. So if it were to happen, or if we were to get a weather forecast that said it could happen, that's how you get your winter wheat market to react to cold weather. I, I don't think you're going to get more than you know, it, you know, short term responses, and then the market's going to double, you know, question whether it really mattered or not. I think the bigger issue for for wheat is the fact that Russia has backed away from exports for the last couple of months. Their exports have been way below last year. Um, they continue to be you know way behind, and, and so so they've taken their foot off the pedal. And as you know, that's been the only thing that really has mattered in the last year. So long as their foot was on the pedal, selling wheat, very hard for the for international wheat prices to do anything. But with their foot off the pedal, now those lost exports have to be bought elsewhere. And we're starting to see some some of the biggest exports from soft red winter wheat here in the U.S. we've seen in 20 years uh, because of it. 
So to me, that's really what I see driving the wheat market, let's say over the next few months, isn't necessarily polar vortex, cold air, other than short-term price shots. It's really, you know, the lost export supply from Russia and the increase in demand for foreign exports because of that. And of course, you know, if we can get this kind of a debilitating U.S. frost, I mean, you, you have yourself uh, the potential for a panic trade, you know, if that were to occur. Obviously, as we get closer, um, you know, as we always talk about signposts, we're looking for further signposts to verify or deny that about this probability for May. But um, as we get closer, you know, we will be able to pinpoint uh, greater chances or more specifically, you know, where the epicenter of a frost might look like. And hopefully we can um, figure that out and provide some good information for the, those that watch your show. So, I hope so. That'd be, that'd be good stuff to know ahead of time. Yeah. Sean, as you're taking a look at, <clears throat> you talked about uh, some chaos and, and dramatic stuff here uh, as we started out. But as you're looking at what's going on in South America, that we're seeing a, a wider pattern come into to South America now. Uh Probably not in time to stay do anything for the for the bean crop that's there. You just put a report out about this not too long ago, uh, actually a day or two ago, um, talking about this very topic. And as you looked at these at your models now, what are your thoughts about South America moving into the second corn crop? And then how do you think the bean situation is going to play out? Well, remember we predicted we would get some wet weather starting right. you know later in December into January. So yep. this is exactly what we've been warned about we talked about a positive aao and some other factors that were going to lead to some increased rainfall but i think people have to understand prior to 2015-16 there is there had never been a drought in central north central west brazil ever because it's always been a rainforest right. we've talked about the deforestation of the amazon yep. and how that's changing the complexion up there and so so that was the very first drought that they've ever had meaning they never have had a back crop in central north central west so the only thing we can go by as a as a relatable you know outcome versus result is 2015-16 so if you look at what happened in 2015-16 up to where the rains began it was drier and hotter this time around than it was that time around vegetative health conditions were worse this time around than it was that than that time around the rainfall that has fallen between late December through now and for maybe one more week, and then we're going to actually go back to a warmer, drier pattern. They had more rainfall back in 1516 than we had this time around, meaning the rainfall was actually um, more plentiful back then than it was this time around. And it was hotter this time around than it was that time around. So there's an, and, and so if you look at the vegetative health just came out, I think this morning or last night, for the the recent week where they've had a lot of rainfall. And our vegetative health is below what it was in 1516. So all the people that are suggesting, and I understand rain makes grain, I expected, fully expected speculators to sell the rainfall because that's what they're taught to do. I I, I get it. But it's not going to rehabilitate the crop. You're not going to have a good soybean crop. You're not going to have, you know, I think originally they were supposed to grow 165 million metric tons. We're not going to produce 165 million metric tons. not going to happen. If we follow what, what happened in 1516, 
we would have a crop potential of around 145 to 150 million metric tons. Um, given that the heat was higher, remember heat is more actually more important than moisture uh, because it was hotter this time around. The vegetative health is worse time around. We'd expect that we could see something a little bit less, maybe closer to 140 million metric tons. So what does that mean? Let's break this down into bushels because we always talk about bushels here in the United States, right? So if, if we come in at 150 million metric tons versus last year's 160 million metric tons, that would mean that uh, Brazil would have about 400 million bushels less soybeans to export than they this year than they did last year. So their exports theoretically would be off by let's say three to four hundred million bushels. Obviously, if it's 140 million metric tons, then they'd have somewhere between six and eight hundred million bushels less soybeans to sell. Now, there's a lot of talk about you know, well, you know, uh, they're they're going to lose it in the, in Brazil, but they're going to gain it in 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 Argentina. Well, that is true, but the big difference is Argentina does not sell raw soybeans. They sell meal and oil to those that want meal and oil. There's a lot of countries that don't want meal and oil. They want the soybeans because they have the crushing capacity to make money by crushing the beans and making oil and the meal themselves. So if you're a raw soybean buyer, you're not going to go buy meal and oil. You're going to go buy raw soybeans. And if you can't get it from Brazil, you got to buy it from the United States. It's very important. It's not a one-for-one relationship here. People keep making this mistake. That's not how this works. Now, don't get me wrong. Over the summer, there's going to be increased availability of meal and oil, and that supply you know, will help you know, reduce some of our exports of that. But when we're talking about raw soybean exports coming out of the United States, which is what drives soybeans higher, that's the driver, always. We're going to have a significant shortfall. And the exports from the United States are going to start to surge because of it, whether it's from China or from others. So that's the story. And the market is like natural gas. It's just making a horrific error in what they're doing here because they're thinking, hey, the crop can be rehabilitated, which it can't. And somehow they think that, that Argentina can save the day. Well, it's, well, they don't sell the same product. And remember, they had a one in 100 year drought last year, Casey. They ran out. They had to import soybeans because they didn't have enough to make meal and oil. Okay, so so they're going to have to put some of that supply that they're some of the better crop they're going to have this year. Some of that's going back into ending. They're going to build inventories again first, foremost. Remember, the only way you survive in Argentina that's gone bankrupt. I think the country's gone bankrupt at least once every five or ten years, for as far as I've been alive. The only way you survive one hundred percent inflation. And 50% inflation, which they've had ever since I've been alive, you have to have the product stored in your bin because that's how you participate in inflation and you you sell when you need to. Well, they're going to rebuild that. They're going to rebuild those inventories first, and then they're going to start to sell. So even even if you buy the story of they're going to make a difference, which I don't because they're not, um, they're still going to have less exports than people think because they're going to build up those inventories because the farmer there, yes, this new guy got in as president. He's going to save the day. He's going to change everything. Well, show me. Maybe it's all true, but I don't believe a farmer down there trusts anything about anything. They're going to stick those soybeans. They're going to build those meal and oil inventories. They're going to protect themselves like they always have. And if it looks like that they finally have a leader, it's going to lead them to the promised land. They can always sell them at a later date, but they're not going to do it now. So when we look at all of that, now corn is different. What 
what Argentina gains versus what, you know, it's the same product. Corn is corn. They're going to sell. <clears throat> so we looked at that. We looked at what, so it acts about second crop corn. So second crop corn is going to be planted horrifically late because soybeans were planted horrifically late. Even if we had ideal, perfect weather, planting corn late has always meant significant reduction in yield and significant reduction in, 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 uh, in uh, planted acres every single time, bar none. We don't need a weather problem to have a big crop shortfall. We don't. In fact, if you look at what happened in 15 and 16, the weather, I wouldn't call the weather perfect, but it wasn't the worst weather we've ever had. And they had, and the crop, the corn crop was down 22% year over year. So, so when we look at our weather outlook, you know, we, the weather that really matters for corn is what's the weather when it pollinates? Well, it's going to pollinate at the heart of the dry season in Brazil, not typically a good thing to do, right? So normally pollination would start getting going in, in mid-March and it would be over by the, the first half of April, but the, we're going to be mostly pollinating now from the first part of April into the early part of May. That's the heart of the dry season. Um, you know, we just don't see anything that says that that's going to be anything but probably drier than normal during the dry season, which is not going to turn out well. So, so we're going to, we're going to go with, so if you look back last 20 years at late planted corn, the average reduction in corn production average, we've been down is 20%. I mean, we've been down 50%, we've been down 25%, but the average decline in a late planted safrina corn crop over the last 20 years, when it's occurred, is 20%. So we're going to go with that, because that's what history says we should go with. Um, and if weather is worse, and we're right, and the weather is actually more unfavorable, then it's going to be more towards 25% or more. If it's a little better weather, then maybe it's going to be closer to 15%. Versus 20. Either way, it's going to be down substantially. So if you go at 20% and you look at how much uh, Argentina would increase corn production and you work through the mix, net corn production in South America will be down um, a, 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 about 600 to 700 million bushels. If you equate it to bushels, total production based upon Argentina being good, Brazil being bad, Along the lines I've just said means that they're going to have a shortfall of about six, seven hundred million bushels short. Meaning they're going to be able to export that much less in the upcoming cycle than they did last year. It was only the only place that has corn to sell, and that's us. So the two point two billion bushel carryout that everyone is so hot and bothered about—that's somehow this behemoth supply that we've never seen before. I mean, I don't feel people realize we used to have three, three and a half billion bushels carry out, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, pretty regularly. Two point two ain't nothing. Uh, yet everyone's acting like it's this massive supply. It really isn't. But if we really think this through, and we say, okay, let's just go with Sean's 600 million bushels, then our actual carryout's going to be maybe 1.6 to 1.7, which is, is enough, but not too much enough. Like, it's it's borderline enough. So, you know, it, you know when we had 3 billion bushels carryout, Casey, we could have a really bad crop and be fine. We we now you know if we're if we're actually one point six one point seven we don't you know we're we're not we can't we can't handle a, you know a, a somewhat off crop like I mean even even if it's a little bit off we can't handle it okay so that's what we're looking at and now now think this through if we have a frost in May 
and we and we get off to a really fast start in April on a fall spring, and we get we got the corn planters rolling, we get the soybean planters rolling, and we get a hard freeze, and we're replanting all those acres in late May, early June. I don't think the market's going to be uh, comfortable about how what that means. So we talk about corn in Brazil. The later you plant, the more it pushes it out, right? Well, if you if we're gonna let's let's just let's just take this through and say let's say a good portion of those early plant acres we got to replant them in late May early June. Well, that means we're pollinating that in late July and August. Well, La Nina is coming back, and our and our preliminary work at minimum is coming back by mid July. So your hot potentially your hottest driest weather pattern would be back half of the growing season. If you plant corn late and you push it out into that back half, you know the key to pollination is heat. If it's too hot and you come up a little short of moisture, that's how you kill pollination. It could be the driest pollination you want, but if it's cool, you're gonna you'll find enough enough droplets to get by. Um, and of course, then we go into a La Nina South American growing season. <laughs> And that means Argentina's back in the hot spot for terrible crops again, you know, and we start the cycle all over again. So I just look at all of this and and, and just like natural gas, <laughs> getting down to COVID lows uh, just recently, you know, corn sitting here at four and a half on the nearby price. It's just not, it's not correctly ascertaining the future. It's looking at now. That's what everybody does. They look at it. Oh, we got two billion bushels according to the USDA. Uh, oh, yeah, current exports uh, of corn is not so good. I understand that. We all know that. You don't right. need me to tell you that. What do you need me to tell you that? Anybody can do that on their own. What are you paying me to tell you that? The market knows that. It's priced in already. What you need me to tell you or what you need to know is what is that going to look like six months from now? Not today. Who cares what the numbers are today? It's history. And all everybody, anybody, all anybody talks about is what we already know. Well, what the hell is that going to do? How do you predict the future price? Well, that you already know. It's not about what you already know. It's about what you don't know that you have to predict we're going to know six months from now. And what I'm telling everyone is according to what I see, the narrative six months from now is going to be much, much less bearish than it is today. And I think there's going to be plenty of reasons for the market to get more excited. And it just so happens, of course, it happens. Speculators, of course, as a percentage of openers, are at the highest short positions they've ever been in the history of the corn market at exactly this moment. You couldn't, you couldn't dial up a better scenario for a, uh, you know, a, a, a sudden and sharp and wild short-covering rally as they move into the spring and early summer, if any of these scenarios that we've just discussed decide to show themselves and get all these computers who are trading our markets now to go, oh, the momentum has shifted. So bye, 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 bye. And that's all the, it's just a computer generated program that says bye, 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 bye. And right now they're saying, sell, 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 sell. Everyone thinks that there's people sitting in a room looking and thinking this through. That's not, unfortunately, computers are trading the markets now. It's a bad thing and it's a good thing. It's a bad thing because they, we, we can see prices divorce themselves from reality 
um, far more than we would have normally expected. And it can be very frustrating. At the same time, it offers tremendous opportunities for mispricings that long-term uh, physical buyers and hedgers can take advantage of. That's how I look at it. But it is, it's, you know, it's the long-term picture that really those that have a long-term orientation can really, really take advantage of the idiocy of momentum-driven computers that have massive, massive capital the likes we've ever seen before. So. A lot of good stuff to pay attention to. All right. So I've got a question from a listener. Uh, Steve sent this in. You kind of answered the first part of it, which was his question was known, knowing what we know about South American moisture versus other dry years. Is there any difference in heat this year compared to your other years? You've talked much about hotter, that. Much hotter. Yeah, much hotter. Much hotter. Much hotter. Much hotter. Much hotter. Much hotter. Yeah, we always talked about that. Yep. All right. Second question is. Uh, see, in your uh, commodity analyst, um, what hypothetically happens to an ag uh, commodities if the U.S. gets involved in a world war uh, or a war breaks out here in the United States or a civil war or something like that breaks out in the United States? So obviously all those would be uh, bad. I think well, what was Einstein's famous remark? I don't know what World War Three is going to be fought with, but I know World War Four is going to be fought with sticks and stones. So I guess you know you can you could take take a little bit of that into this. But I guess as you're looking at this, you know we had G not too long ago sit right across from Joe Biden and said, "You're with me on this on this uh, whole uh, Taiwan thing, right?" So just so you know, we're doing that, and and it was that very just the way he said it and the way it came across is just. Like it's going to happen. Um, if that does happen, that could spring a lot of um, other countries to get involved. If there were something that that were to pop off there, and the United States got involved, what we're seeing in the Iraq in, or not in Iran um, with the tensions there, with the the Houthi uprising that we're seeing, and, and the stuff we're going on there, there's some tensions that are that are building there as well. So I guess lots of geopolitical stuff going on that could cause a, a a world war of sorts i guess sean as you look at those scenarios if something like that were to break out what would your expectation be for commodity prices well let's talk about the geopolitical war cycle it's a 56 uh or 50 53.5 year cycle i believe it is and uh, it's coming due the, the the peak is coming due in 2026 give or take one year we did an analysis of all periods where we've had what we consider to be world wars and what that meant for commodities, hard assets. And in every single instance, it was a wild inflationary period going into and through those geopolitical war cycles, world war cycles, because whoever's fighting the war, if it's a global war, everyone's having to spend enormous amounts of money to fight it. The only way you can do that, you have to print a tremendous amount of money and you have to borrow a tremendous amount of money to fight these wars. These wars cause a dramatic increase in protectionism, meaning that everyone wants to stockpile inventories for a rainy day because they're afraid George and Jim and Jingle and Heimer and Schmidt are not going to sell it to them tomorrow, so they better buy it today. So everybody front loads purchases because they, they can't afford to run out, especially for things like wheat and rice and things that are very important to their society. Um, trade Flows, you know, get get ruptured. Um, production capacity 
uh, as we saw a little bit with the Ukraine, you know, production capacity gets uh, gets reduced. You know, could we have a, a refinery get uh, destroyed in Saudi Arabia during a world war? Of course we could. What does that mean for oil production? What does that mean for the price of oil? So all these things have, you know, have tended throughout history to, to be inflationary for hard assets, for commodity assets going into and through these um, crescendos in the geopolitical cycle. And we're clearly in an escalating geopolitical cycle. I don't know if the 53.5-year cycle will, will repeat as it has for the last 500 years, but I'm going to go with that cycle because it has. And it says be on the lookout for some kind of a real dramatic crescendo of whatever's going on and however it might end in that 2026 plus or minus one year period, which would mean that the risks to geopolitics are for upward inflationary risks to commodity assets, to hard assets, to food, to energy based upon that. Um, And obviously, given that the U.S. still has by far the largest military in the world by an infinite amount. And because our finances are as precarious as they've ever been, if we got immersed into a world war where we had to dramatically increase our spending at a time that we're already in probably the worst financial shape our country has been in since World War II, uh, the, the amount of money that would have to be printed to fund that kind of a war would be astronomical. We couldn't tax it. You can't, you know, there's nowhere to get the money. You'd have to just print it if you're going to fight the war. And boy, that we just went through one of those things. And during COVID, we printed a ton of money. And we yeah. saw what the outcome was. Well, it would be COVID all over again, but it wouldn't be for COVID. It would be for fighting World War Three. We'd have to print a tremendous amount of money. And so we'd have too much money chasing, you know, guns and butter. You know, all the money would be going for non-productive uses, and that means inflation. So, you know, I'm, I'll never say that, it, it, that that every time is the same, and maybe this time will be different, but I'm going to go with what has always happened to hard assets for our studies going back 500 years, that that would be the likely outcome, that, it, that if any of these scenarios that you're, the gentleman it's sending a question and others talk about it. We don't know what's going to happen next, but if any of them were to happen, that's to me is where your risks lie. So. Yeah. yeah a lot of, a lot of things to think about there. If you, if you look at the, the geopolitical side of it and, you know, we had, uh, had Chip Mellinger on here about a week ago and we were talking about, you know, is 24 shaping up like 23 did. And I, I just don't, it doesn't feel like there's any, Anyone's had a chance to catch their breath from from twenty three going into twenty four. It's just well, the first same of all, thing going again. It's an election year in right. many countries, not just the United States. So no, but just that by itself means it's not the same year. We already know it's not right. the same year. So because election years means always different, always. Um, Federal Reserve is already saying they're going to start lowering rates. They just pivoted all of a sudden out of nowhere. They're going to start lowering rates and printing more money again. So that by definition, that's completely different from what happened in twenty three. Um, you know, and, um, so, so just, just, just those two pieces of the puzzle are entirely different and, and we're going from El Nino weather pattern to La Nina. So, so from a weather perspective, completely different. So we look at all those three things. It, It can't be the same year because none of the three key variables, which is monetary policy, currency, geopolitics, government action, spending, Federal Reserve stuff, weather stuff, none of it is remotely going to be the same in 24 as it was in 23. Now, we can argue what the outcome is. 
you can argue, you know, what this, then that, and, you know, we can argue about the pathway forward, but it cannot and won't be the same kind of a year. It'll be very different. Be a fun ride no matter what, man. There's a lot of things to pay attention to. So, Sean, look forward to working with you more here in 2024 and uh, look forward to uh, having a prosperous 2024 for the folks listening. For sure. And, and the last <laughs> thing I would I would say, Casey, regarding this geopolitical stuff, usually usually the very, very best asset to pick up on a world war or, or this kind of thing is really the gold market, you know. Um, uh, if that market, you know, it's been very strong in the last um, three to six months, but if that really were to break out on the chart and and really start trending and, and going uh, into some kind of a parabolic move, which is done many times before, especially ahead of geopolitical escalations, I really think the gold market would probably sense this kind of an event well in advance because, you know, there's always people in the world that know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and who's going to yep. do it and why. And I'm sure they're going to get involved in our commodity markets, buying yep. and selling our commodity markets based on what they already know, even though you and I don't know. So right. I think gold is a very important asset to watch. And I know there's a lot of there's a lot of um, uh, gnashing of teeth over Bitcoin. It's it's a it's a scam. It's a Ponzi scheme. It it's it's a lot of things. But until proven otherwise, it's become a digital monetary asset. And until it's proven otherwise, it's a digital monetary asset. It's something we recommended in our newsletter at 700, for those that don't know, many years ago, as a, something we thought would be of interest. Uh, obviously, didn't know it was going to turn out the way that it did, but it did. And, uh, uh, and, so, and so Bitcoin is another asset that I think would probably go crazy, like gold, in advance of some kind of a, an escalation of a geopolitical. So I would watch... Bitcoin and I'd watch gold for synchronous escalations showing that capital is positioning or fleeing or getting ready for some kind of a significant escalation of a of a geopolitical nature of a world war of something of that nature. I think those two assets would capture a tremendous amount of capital flow well in advance and then the then commodities will come in underneath it as 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 we start to hear about what we did not know was coming. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yep. For sure. Well, good stuff as usual, Sean. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what you're doing at Hackett Financial. What's the best way to do that? Our website is at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We have a Twitter page, at Ferradix11. have a LinkedIn page from time to time, not often, but we'll put a few things out. We put something out yesterday on soybeans just because we couldn't take the narrative anymore. We just felt we had to put something out that puts facts to the matter instead of all this hyperbole we hear. So anyway, we try to put some things out from time to time that people can get an idea of our cycles, our work, our weather, and to see if how we look at the world of commodities and agriculture specifically is a value to those watching your show. Right on. Sean, appreciate you, and uh, we'll look forward to working again further into 24 here. Same here, Casey. Thanks. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast. Go to, uh, where else am I at? Go on Instagram, Moving Iron LLC. Go to TikTok. Go to, uh, what's the other one? I can't remember all now. I got my I'm everywhere. So let's go find me, Moving Iron Podcast. See the video version over on YouTube, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Check it out there. Uh, go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related. Have a new, I should have a new uh, website up here pretty soon with a lot more information on there and some cool, uh, cool stuff coming out there as well. So, 
With that, I am Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron, folks. Out. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Moving iron in the 21st century.